Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 46 of the world's greatest and only audio newspaper for a visual world uh, for the week beginning Monday, the 29th of September 2008, with me, Andy Zaltzman, in London. And in New York City, it's Emmy Award loser, John Oliver. <laughs> Hello, Buglers, and f*** you, Andy. <laughs> Have you recovered from the shame yet, John? <laughs> no, the, that shame lives with you, Andy. That's a stench that stings. Yeah. When you fly uh, next into Britain, I do hope you're met by an angry mob at Heathrow Airport pelting you with tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, you let us down. I did indeed uh, uh, go to the Emmys, which were, as I expected, and I believe as I may have even said, a three-hour exercise in self-satisfied smugness. <laughs> even Oprah, Andy, even Oprah let herself down, and she's <laughs> essentially Queen of the United States. Pretty much the Queen of Hearts as well. She inherited that title from Diana, who gave it to her on her deathbed. <laughs> the point is, even Oprah... In an opening speech, which, in hindsight, was very much like the opening speech delivered on the Titanic, said, (laughs) It's been a difficult year for television, and also a difficult year for the world. Not in that order, Oprah. Not (laughs) in that order. And and this is the first time uh, in, what, a long time that the London-New York combination has been back together. This is like, it could be over a month. It's like a retro... Yeah, because I was in Edinburgh, so it might might actually be July that was the last time that's... Look at that. Yeah. Wow. God, it just feels right, doesn't it? Just feels right. It does feel right. It feels just right. We're both where we belong. You are (laughs) no longer welcome in this country. (laughs) As always, some sections of the Bugle are going straight in the bin. This week, a home gadgetry section. We profile the gadgets set to revolutionise domestic life in October 2008. And the gadgets featured include the automatic cutlery selector. Simply type in the dish you're about to eat and the cutlery selector will advise you what utensils you need. Endorsed by the former German tennis star Anke Huber, the former world number four. Huber said, never again will I slice my bottom lip off whilst trying to eat a soup. Also featured the portable personal wood fire rucksack. Enjoy the warming comforts of a genuine log fire as the winter approaches and save on wasted energy with this wood-burning backpack. Simply strap the fireplace onto your back and wherever you go in the house, you'll be snug and warm. Includes free emergency burns treatment kit. Endorsed by hypothetical Bugle fan David Schwimmer. No more chilly walks to the kitchen for me, laughs the 41-year-old former actor. I back this all the way. It's flaming brilliant. And also featured is the John Oliver autograph bonsai dog trimmer. As used by Daily Show star and renowned joke smith John Oliver. Keep larger breeds of pooch down to a manageable household hold size. What? Hold, hold on a second. What are you doing, Andy? <laughs> Just had a word with our manager and, you know, he thought it would be good for your profile. Anyway, with the bonsai dog trimmer, you can keep larger breeds of pooch down to a manageable household size with this electronic leg, tail and snout shortener. With replacement blades, canine-friendly antiseptic swabs and bandages and a genuine limited edition John Oliver endorsed miniature poop scoop to keep your neighbourhood clean. I'm John Oliver and you can't <laughs> afford not to have this item. Sell out. You don't even like dogs. Top story this week, Armageddon news. And, well, long story short, it's going pretty well. Closer and closer to mankind's implosion. We'll get there, people, with the new dinosaurs. In fact, I think the scientists may want to have another look at how the dinosaurs became extinct. Are they sure it was an asteroid and not a bunch of greedy diplodocus short-selling shares in leaves and screwing everything up? Because the way this last month has gone, that seems a lot more plausible. 
When we left you last time, the government was preparing a $700 billion bailout of Wall Street. And that seemed like a great, terrible idea at the time. <laughs> so, what has happened since then? Well... First, Washington Mutual collapsed on Thursday night, as a CNN correspondent said just this morning. The biggest bank collapse in the history of the US, the history of the world, and the history of the pre-world. There were some pretty big banks in the pre-world, Andy. Or at least we can't be entirely sure that there weren't. (laughs) Some people do think the universe began with the big bank. Please with yourself. You stand by that, do you? (laughs) Secondly, John McCain inexplicably decided that the situation was so serious that he would suspend his campaign, which took everyone by surprise due to the fact that it was the decision process of a man who has completely lost his mind. (laughs) Either that, or maybe it was an incredibly crass piece of gamesmanship, because he was essentially saying, I'm going to rise above petty partisan politics, and I'm going to do it much better than my opponent. (laughs) So now they're trying to outposture each other in terms of leadership. Each candidate is now whipping out their presidential penis and slapping it on the table in front of them, saying, this is what I've got on day one. Show the American public yours. Let the people decide whose penis they want carved into Mount Rushmore. I can't quite decide, uh, John, if I think McCain is being uh, careful or reckless, uh, whether he's being bold or cowardly. And right. I guess this is either the action that you want of a president or not the action you want of a president. That very much Good depends point. on how you view it, which presumably depends on how you view American politics, which in itself depends on <laughs> how your grandfather views American politics. That is great punditry, Andrew. <laughs> well, thanks, mate. Well done. <laughs> McCain eventually made it back to Washington on Thursday morning, but about an hour after he landed, it was announced that a deal had all but been done. At which point he started moonwalking around the Capitol in triumph, screaming, That cannot just have been a coincidence. I, John McCain, American hero, have saved the dollar from itself. (laughs) So he went over to the meeting, reportedly sat virtually silent the entire time, and the deal very promptly fell apart. (laughs) And after after that, the victory moonwalk came into something closer to a shame shuffle. And so as we record now, the deal is off again, and banks are on the precipice. And Andy, McCain is right. This is not the time to be recording an episode of The Bugle. We need to concentrate all our efforts on solving this problem, even though we, like him, are not on any of the finance committees set up to deal with this. But that's not the point. This Bugle will now take an impromptu 15-second suspension to make any other podcast continuing to broadcast look bad. The suspension begins now. OK, Andy, that should have showed the world that we care enough. Let's get back to it. <laughs> and Bush did his best to threaten Congress into passing the bill this week by delivering an emergency address to the nation for the first time since 2002 when he told everyone about what a great idea the Iraq war would be. <laughs> and now, like then, he concentrated on terrifying people into thinking that not backing him would be disastrous. Crying wolf at the wolf that he himself had placed outside. <laughs> He yet again said, now is not the time to play the blame game. When is going to be the time to play that game? Because I'm really looking forward to a little round. I'll tell you why Bush hates the blame game so much. Because he loses it all the time. (laughs) He prefers Connect Four. It tends not to end with everyone pointing out how much they hate him quite as much. I don't know, you've not played Connect Four with him, John. I've I've played with Rumsfeld once and uh, things got a little bit ugly. But I guess the blame game for George W. Bush will run pretty much from January the 21st, 2009, until the end of time. 
so I guess there's no there's no need to rush into it now. I think that's his point. You know, we can all just wait until January the twenty first, and then just you know go for it. As he walked up to the podium and looked into the camera, my blood suddenly ran cold, Andy, as I realised that whenever this president looks directly into the lens, something terrible is about to happen. (laughs) He began saying, I know many Americans have questions tonight. And he was right there, Andy. Chief amongst them was, what the f***? (laughs) George W.T.F. Bush. And the speech turned out to be mainly a series of threats. He started sounding like a bad gangster. Hello, America. Lovely home you've got here. Shame if something happened to it. Such a dangerous world. 700 billion should keep you safe. And seen. <laughs> it's interesting, 700 billion, John, is almost the exact cost so far of uh, the Iraq war. Uh, it's, it's almost that Bush has got something about things costing $700 billion <laughs> that he just, just can't shake. Well, actually, that, that very point was pointed out to Secretary Paulson. Uh, and he said, well, yeah, but the Iraq war was expenditures. This is purchasing assets, holding assets, reselling assets with money coming back into the Treasury. And he's right, Andy, that's not like Iraq. That was, in every sense, an impulse buy. <laughs> that, was, that was like buying a 20-foot porcelain swan. We really thought we wanted that swan, but now we can't get rid of it. It does seem clear that President Bush has virtually no power whatsoever in Washington at the moment. And I don't trust anyone connected to this administration. They're asking for $700 billion just weeks before leaving office. (laughs) Is it suspicious that they're asking for it all in 20s? (laughs) I'll tell you, come January the 21st, they're loading all the money into the back of a truck and heading for Mexico. Prime Minister resignation news now, and Gordon Brown has not resigned following the party conference uh, in Manchester this week. His premiership is now slightly less dead in the water than it was this time last week. In fact, he even almost managed a convincing smile. So the whole thing went pretty much as well as could be hoped. And the most uh, ear-catching thing that Gordon Brown said, John, was when he said that in these difficult times it was no time for a novice a dig simultaneously at uh, the Conservative uh, leadership and at his rivals within his own party. But I would like to take issue with Gordon Brown over this because I think in many ways... This is time for a novice. Because people who aren't novices have got the world into this mess. The novice might at least come at it with some fresh ideas. And I guess this is a bit like being told by a surgeon in the middle of some botched surgery that really your best hope of surviving the mess that that surgeon has made is for the same surgeon to sort it out. And when you ask whether the surgery really needed to happen in the first place because you hadn't asked for it and you were quite happy with the two legs you had before the operation and you really think that three legs is being greedy in terms of legs and you're now quite cross with the surgeon for what he's doing, the surgeon then pulls his mask back over his face and then it's ring, ding, 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 chainsaw time. I mean, I didn't see uh, uh, much of the Labour Party conference, Andy, due to the fact that America was destroying itself this week. (laughs) Was it a success, as much of a success as a dead man walking could be? (laughs) Virtually any party conference is viewed as a success in the immediate yep. aftermath of it happening uh, before right. people turn to the outside world and realise that no one gives a flying f- about it. But Brown has painted himself as a serious man for serious times and again I think this is an error because I think if anything serious times need someone to lighten the mood a bit and I think we, we in Britain could do with a frivolous man in charge of the country at this difficult time. And what about his inevitable defeat, Andy? Is that just <laughs> slightly inevitable defeat or a very inevitable defeat? Well, I think maybe it's slightly less inevitable uh, than it once was. Uh, the, that inevitability has decreased. I mean, it's still inevitable, but, you know, it's yeah. less inevitable. Like yeah. death, you know, after you've had a salad. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put. Thanks. 
<laughs> Every time I eat a salad from now on, <laughs> I'm going to think about the inevitability of death. Yeah. <laughs> UN roundup now, and the UN General Assembly has been in session, uh, which to most of the city that I'm in at the moment means bad traffic. But it usually also means Hugo Chavez doing his US-baiting stand-up routine, calling Bush a devil, claiming that the UN stinks of sulphur before dropping his microphone on the floor and screaming, UN, I'm out of here! And then breakdancing off as Lil Wayne blasts over the sound system. But, sadly, he decided to skip his favourite gig this year in favour of going on an oil tour. And could he resist pissing off the US whilst doing this? Well, can a smack addict resist chasing his dragon? He started with some light sparring by signing an oil deal with China, uh, which was just a bit of dry humping leading up to some (laughs) frantic verbal pumping. As he started singing, singing, You Are So Like Me, an impromptu song about Bush and the future US banking system. He never disappoints, Andy. He is the ultimate showman. I don't don't think there's been enough songs in this whole financial crisis. I think maybe if... uh, Paulson had announced his bailout package uh, in the form of, uh, you know, kind of a skiffle number. I think people <laughs> might have been better disposed to it. Uh, Chavez also claimed this week that the current crisis proves that socialism is the best solution for the world. Whereas George W. Bush, by contrast, he claimed that democratic capitalism is the best way forward. So, again, it just seems they're never going to agree on that, John. I just They don't seem to be finding any middle ground. <laughs> He, he did argue that capitalism is the best system, but that would have sounded a bit more powerful had he not been in the process of essentially nationalising the banks at the time. <laughs> and yes, indeed, uh, Chavez did cheer up. Socialism is the only route to salvation in the world. And we've heard that before, of course. Uh, the only thing is, it's usually followed by millions of people dying. But you know, it's, it's great to hear it again. Uh, but yet again, the press attention was taken by Sarah Palin, doing nothing. The press were controversially allowed only 29 seconds to film her meeting world leaders at the UN and were allowed to ask no more than zero questions. (laughs) But but amazingly, even that still turned out to be slightly too long as they managed to catch the president of Pakistan making what seemed to be a clumsy pass at her. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, Pakistan Information Minister Sherry Raymond asked her, and how does one keep looking that good when one is that busy? Which is creepy. (laughs) It's barely appropriate in the UN bar. Is one an astronaut because one has stars in one's eyes? (laughs) Most thought that this was as bad as it was going to get until it turned out that this information minister was, in fact, just playing wingman for the president, who entered calling her gorgeous and said, (laughs) Now I know why the whole of America is crazy about you. Let's get... One thing straight, Mr. President. At most, only half of this country is crazy about her, and the other half is dry-retching into a bucket whenever her name is mentioned. Uh, Sarah Palin had uh, another interview this week with Katie Couric, a journalistic volcano, uh, and even managed to look bad in that interview. Uh, she essentially reduced foreign affairs to good versus evil, saying, and this is a direct quote, Andy, it is obvious to me who the good guys are in this one and who the bad guys are. The bad guys are the ones who say Israel is a stinking corpse and should be wiped off the face of the earth. That's not a good guy who is saying that. Now, one would seek to protect the good guys in this, the leaders of Israel and her friends, her allies, including the United States. In my world, those are the good guys. Uh, Excuse me, Andy, I just need to go off and self-harm for a bit. (laughs) It's It's just that the pain is the only thing that reminds me that I'm still alive. Well, come on, to be fair, John, she's only found out that there is a world... 
in the last couple of years. My daughter is, uh, you know, just yeah. coming up to two yeah. in a few months. And so I guess she's kind of got the same foreign policy experience as Sarah Palin. Yeah. And she That's probably has a similarly simplistic view on the Middle East situation. <laughs> I think I'd be happier with your daughter running for vice president with her good guy, bad guy, <laughs> goo goo gaga attitude towards the world. <laughs> Other news now, and China is in space. It launched a rocket containing astronauts to attempt China's first ever spacewalk. Uh, the rocket Shenzhou 7 is supposed to be the first space rocket visible from the Great Wall of China. <laughs> there was one uh, fa- fascinating story with this, John. Uh, the Chinese state news agency published uh, a supposed conversation between the three astronauts on board this rocket kind of describing uh, what was going on on the rockets and you know the, the trip so far unfortunately they published this before the rocket had taken off <laughs> in another spectacular example of chinese media management shall we say <laughs> following on from the uh, use of a pretty girl to mouth the uh, olympic anthem well, yeah, there, there are two possible explanations for this, Andy. One, the Chinese government uh, is so obsessed with controlling their public image that they faked a transcript and they mistakenly released it too soon. Or two, the Chinese government are so obsessed with controlling their public image that they've carefully scripted all conversations <laughs> to be taking place in space. <laughs> it's going to be like a play. The astronauts have been rehearsing for months. This is curtain-up time. Obviously, they're, they're learning quite a lot from America, it seems. Um, of course, the real conversation on board was, in fact, much more mundane, as we now know. Uh, we do have a transcript of what that conversation was, and here it is. Nice takeoff, Wing Lao. Thanks, Lee Chang. Anyone know how to land this thing? <laughs> Just kidding, I'm fully trained. How's, how's my Ling? Oh, she's okay. Oh, good. Why'd you ask? I, was just, I heard you two were having a few... No, 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 we've sorted that out. She's fine with me going into space now. Well, that's because it means you can't stop her from uh, nothing. Stop her from what, mate? No, nothing. Hey, did you see the table tennis last night? Good game. What are you inferring, mate? Has she seen that rocket scientist again? Is she? I'm a f***ing astronaut. What more does she want? Well, she probably wants someone who doesn't wear his f***ing space suit in bed. At least take the helmet off before you, you know. What? Is it a crime to love your job these days? No, but, you know, just, just keep them separate. Oh, con H. Fuchsius. That's really pissed me off. Hey, slow down, man. You're going to hit that satellite. What of it, mate? Hey, look, I'm sure you two can patch things up. I'll patch you up, mate. Calm down, Lee Chang. Get your hands off my rocket. Ooh, ducky, I cannot believe you're on this mission. Food news now. And Peter, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, sent a letter to Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's ice cream fame, uh, urging them to replace the cow's milk they use in their products with human breast milk. And it's interesting to think what people were doing when they heard that last sentence. (laughs) I'm... Of this Bugle podcast, I'm guessing that joggers have run into lampposts, (laughs) cyclists have ridden into ditches, and statistically, someone somewhere listening to this podcast must have frozen motionless as a spoon of Ben & Jerry's ice cream (laughs) was moving towards their mouth. This request came off the back of last week's news that a Swiss restaurant will begin purchasing breast milk from nursing mothers and substituting it for 75% of the cow's milk in the food they serve. This clear publicity stunt has led to mass bookings in the restaurant from babies and perverts. (laughs) I have to say, John, though, that the idea of human milk ice cream... Yeah. It's not hugely appetising. No. I've tasted human milk uh, both a long time ago and relatively recently, albeit (laughs) slightly second-hand, as my young daughter aged 
a month chundered it straight back up into my face. <laughs> and I just can't imagine even how many strawberries you put in it. It's just not going to be what you want in a cone. That should be a quote from you on the front of the new Ben & Jerry's human milk ice cream. <laughs> Andy Dalsman, not hugely appetising. <laughs> uh, in, in a statement, Ben & Jerry said, We applaud Peter's novel approach to bringing attention to an issue, but we believe a mother's milk is best used for her child. <laughs> well played, Ben & Jerry. You got out of that one smoothly. <laughs> Very nicely done. What you don't want to do is imply that you will agree to battery farm breast milk, (laughs) a factory of women with their waps out being mechanically milked into a trough. It's the most cost-effective way of getting it, Andy. Well, that's how we made... They're running a business. That's how we made ice cream in the war, John. You know, women did their part, let's not forget. That could be the worst thing you've ever said. Your emails now, and we've had a veritable cascade of responses uh, to what the man I overheard talking to his wife on the train might have been saying when I, he told... I knew, <laughs> I knew this would be a fun game. I knew it. <laughs> if you recall, uh, uh, he told her he'd bought her her favourite thing, that it began with G, uh, and then she couldn't guess what it was, and then he said, uh, then R, and then she guessed what it was. But I was left in the dark as to what it was. You have sent in some very good suggestions for what that word beginning with GR might have been. This comes from Sherry Garfio in Denver, Colorado. I don't have to guess what he got for his wife. I know, it surely was a gradiometer. Well do I remember when my dear sweet husband gave me my first gradiometer. It was the night he proposed to me. In fact, it was in place of an engagement ring. Somehow he knew not to bother with a big flashy rock. But what I really longed for was my very own gradiometer, and boy did he deliver. <laughs> I admit it's a little unwieldy getting on and off the bus with it strapped around my finger, but it's certain to turn heads wherever I go. So that's a possibility, a gradiometer. <laughs> Which I believe is some, is some kind of device for uh, mapping underground. This one comes from Dave Anderson, who writes, I myself have overheard many husbands giving something to their wives that begins with a GR, the irony that Andy did in fact have the correct word, although he mispronounced it. And no, this has nothing to do with accents. The word is gravel, as in Mike Gravel. <laughs> Since the end of his presidential bid, one can hire Mike to come to your house for dinner and light conversation for a reasonable fee. You can ask him all the questions you might have had about his presidential run, including, what were you thinking? To wit, Dave suggests the Mike Gravel dinner package, which I can find no trace of on the internet, so I'm just going to have to take his word for it. Apparently, for $49.95, you get appetisers for four. Entree of oven-baked turkey with gravy, salmon or herb-roasted chicken. Sides including mashed potatoes and seasonal vegetables, and sorbet and coffee for dessert. And, of course, Mike Gravel himself. So, what a great gift for a lady. An evening with Mike Gravel. Uh, Dave concludes, I think you'll all agree this is exceptional value for money and any woman would be thrilled to be treated to dinner with a former presidential candidate, albeit a joke one. Michael Schall suggests that the woman on the train's favourite thing is, of course, your favourite GR as well. Great Britain! Made possible, (laughs) Made possible, of course, by the current economic situation. He brought her Great Britain in what I think is a very lovely romantic gesture. If only my girlfriend would pay attention to my needs for land masses. (laughs) <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Gilham writes If the man on the train's wife is anything like me Her favourite thing starting with GR Will be grappling hooks <laughs> And then he nominates as a hottie from history The 19th century Australian father of genetics Gregor Mendel Who of course also begins with GR Maybe, maybe he gave her Gregor Mendel's Rotted corpse uh, Mark Ellers From Atlanta, Georgia Suggests that it is in fact the 1984 classic film Gremlins uh, or possibly Gremlins 2, a new batch. 
But, he says, that is unlikely, as we all know that the original was far superior to the sequel. Andy knows what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about without having seen either of them. Mike Flaherty <laughs> writes, If I were lucky enough to have someone bring me my favourite thing that begins with G and R, it would most certainly be a big, suspense-filled basket of John Grisham novels. He is one of the world's greatest ever authors, with ever oh. in italics. Christopher Luponi writes, I think the man brought his wife Greenland. His wife has a fjord fetish. She probably also gets off on Eskimos, seal skins, and particularly Eskimos in seal skins. I believe they prefer the term Inuits, but you're right, Eskimo <laughs> is a funnier word. It's a funny word. Another quick email here. Uh, this is from Harry in Devon who says, Dear Andy and John, brackets in order of Jewishness, correct. I was pleasantly surprised to find that as of the 24th of September, Andy Zaltzman is now a Pakistani cricketer. <laughs> This is some more Wikipedia fun, and well done again, Buglers. Uh, I see that you are now a man of many talents and nationalities. The Bugles' righteous crusade to bring the word of misinformation is spreading to more articles at a rate that former Downing Street Director of Communications and Strategy Alistair Campbell will be proud of. I'm sorry, John, your article is still the boring pile of factual (laughs) mediocrity it always was. Hotties from history now, and this nomination from Matthew Faraday. Who writes, I nominate the Statue of Liberty. How has it taken so long for the finest green lady in the world to be nominated? This 305 foot tall green blue copper woman towers over New York as equal part symbol of freedom and smouldering sexuality. Wearing nothing but a cloth, a crown and the Declaration of Independence. Ow! (laughs) This hottie from history makes democracy look sexy. Just ask the Irish immigrants of the 1840s. Didn't go back to the British Empire, did they? No, once they saw 30 foot breasts, it's hard to go back to that phallic symbol you Brits call a clock again. Keep your Florence, your Joanna the Mad. My dream girl is 35, 27, 36. Metres, that is. From Matthew Faraday in Detroit, Michigan, USA, USA, USA. Outstanding nomination. That, I think that just goes straight in. I think that goes straight in as Miss September. Yeah, although the Irish immigrants of the 1840s, of course, would not have been attracted by the Statue of Liberty's 30-foot breasts on the grounds that they didn't exist That's... yet for another 40-odd years. Well, you say that, Andy. I think the idea of them was there, even yeah. if they weren't. So, thanks for your emails and hotties, more of which next week. Do keep your emails flooding into the bugle at timesonline.co.uk. Sport now, and Yankee Stadium is no more as a baseball stadium. The Yankees romped to a victory over the Baltimore Orioles, uh, but still missed out on a playoff spot. And it was an evening, uh, John, I watched it on on British television, kind of suffused with nostalgia for all the great moments that haven't taken place there this year, but have in previous years. Uh, I guess we've all got our favourite memories of Yankee Stadium, John. For me, my best memory of uh, the house that Ruth built will be the night that I smashed three home runs in Game 6 of the World Series back in 1977. Uh, Uh, Bear in mind, I was only three. Now, a lot of people say it was Reggie Reggie Jackson who hit those dingers, but if you actually look back at the footage, it was actually a little uh, ginger-haired English kid living out his dreams and parking it into the bleachers for the sheer love of it. Three pitches, three moonshots, Dr Longball was in his surgery, and he diagnosed a case of triple big fly. The t- and see ya! <laughs> the toddler of Tonk, they called me. The small sultan of circuit clouting. Great days. 
Seems funny to think I'll never play there again. Well, we sat we sat in those dugouts, Andy, didn't we? Yeah. You know, we had a we had a, uh, had a little tour around it when Andy was over yeah. here. We had it a little walking tour. Very, it's great, it's a, wasn't it? It's a lot of history that's being bulldozed like a sleeping yes. matador. Yes. Babe Ruth's uh, daughter threw out the first pitch, and did you see it happen, Andy? I missed it. I missed that bit. I'm afraid. Oh, really? Because apparently she bounced it, and there is a tradition of booing anyone who bounces <laughs> the pitch. And I do hope they booed her. <laughs> uh, it would be a, a, the wrong way to go out for those fans to suddenly get polite. Because my, my boss, John Stewart, fulfilled a lifelong dream of throwing out the first pitch at the Mets last year. And he bounced it. And he was booed. <laughs> if you're going to boo him, the least you can do is boo a 96-year-old woman. <laughs> what if you fling it over the, over the catcher's head? Does that get booed as well? Because surely I that's your default. So. You just ping it into the crowd. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, for, just go hard. Yeah. Does anyone ever follow it up with a bit of verbal and imaginary batsman? Or not? <laughs> what I'd love someone to do with the first pitch is to look like they're going to do it and then throw it to first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, I guess also for me, the Yankee Stadium will always be the stadium where pitcher Colter Bean made his Major League <laughs> debut in 2005. The first of six glorious appearances for the Bronx Bombers. And to my mind, he's probably the Yankees' greatest ever player. I know that's a controversial view, and the stats don't really back it up. But to me, Coulter Bean epitomises everything that the Yankees stood for. In British sports, the big news this week is that West Ham United uh, are being punished for contravening uh, league regulations when they signed uh, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascarano, the Argentinian international stars. And Tevez's goals kept West Ham up that season at the expense of Sheffield United, and it's viewed that uh, without Tevez they would have got relegated. But I take a contrary view to this, John, because in the year before they signed Tevez and Mascherano, West Ham finished ninth, and the year after, when they both left, they finished tenth, which suggests that Tevez and Mascherano were hugely divisive in the dressing room, <laughs> and in fact they damaged West Ham, and therefore rather than uh, West Ham paying Sheffield United compensation because United got relegated in place of them, all the other clubs should be paying West Ham compensation for the damage they did to themselves. But you never hear the truth in football anymore. It's just all you, you bullshit. Are, you are a lawyer's husband, aren't you, Andy? <laughs> Testify. Bugle forecast this week, and my first forecast is that the first Bugle column will appear in uh, the Times newspaper uh, on Saturday, or will have appeared on Saturday, depending on when you listen to this. Uh, and you can get that uh, at the Bugle page uh, on the website if you're unable to access the print edition. And also, our forecast this week is how much of your house will you still own or be able to live in this time next week as the financial crisis continues to screw over the world like a badly scrambled egg? John, what's your prediction for this? Uh, you better hope you have a porch because that's all you're going to have left. Just a porch? I think you might be left with just a roof. A roof with some pillars on the corners. And, you know, that's, you know, it could be worse. Could be it's worse. not nothing. At least it's a roof over your head. <laughs> Good luck keeping your house. Uh, good luck also to uh, our friend Gavin, who's getting married uh, next Saturday. Happy yes. wedding to Gavin Happy and wedding, Amy. Gav. Try not to cry as much as I did at my wedding, which was we, a lot. It was, a, it was a lot. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Bugle 47. Bye. Cheerio. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. 
In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.